Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. Sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, a story that Radcliffe Royds first shared on the podcast in July of 2014. Here's Radcliffe now with a story we call Riches to Rags. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks. Good evening. What a privilege for you. Um, I, what a privilege to share uh, this stage with so many wonderful storytellers. So cast your minds back to the summer of 2001. It's a Sunday evening. I'm sitting in my fully loaded Audi Quattro Coupe. I'm wearing a suit because I'm that kind of guy. I'm obviously a shaker and a mover. So I come from Northumberland, I come from one of those families which can best be described, in America I'd be described as Ivy League. I'm coming back from a weekend in Bournemouth, on the coast in England, the Riviera if you will. I'm driving back, (laughs) a boy can dream, it's an Audi Quattro fully loaded, simple minds live in the city of light playing, I am master of my destiny. 
And I pull up to my rather smart and elegant five-bedroom house in Clapham, sort of shishi residential area where lots of city types, which I was supposed to be, lived. I put my key in the lock, nothing. 9.30 on a Sunday night, you know, oh, God, these bloody builders. The key didn't work. I knelt down for the second time to this woman who was behind the front door and negotiated through the letterbox the end of my second marriage. A little more sympathy, please. I mean, you've only met me. You don't know her at all. Go with what you know. I didn't know she was pumped up on a heady cocktail of Ciroc, Saturn, Chardonnay. I had no idea. She'd taken again me. Anyway, long story short, I was out. I rang a friend. What does anyone do in a time of need? I rang a friend. I said, oh, mate, oh, God, it's all gone wrong. She's thrown me out. She's changed the locks. He just went, just come, dude, just come. We all need these friends in life. He lived over in Notting Hill. I got in the car, shot over there, feeling pretty jagged. I was scared. I was more angry and concerned and thought, you know, I thought, oh, well, work it out, you know. And he just gave me a big hug and said, what a bitch, what a bitch. <laughs> and as he stood aside, he said, I want you to meet Kirby. Now, Kirby was a bit of a fox, actually. <laughs> Slightly tattooed. Just a little too much, you know, which I like. <laughs> More importantly, she was carrying a tray with a very exotic combination of pharmaceuticals. <laughs> I was hurting. I mean, I re- you know, I was devastated. It wasn't good, you know. I had a business meeting the next day. My suit was in the house. You know, how, how was I going to look good? Um, so, you know, there was a major issue. Anyway, my friend just said, come, come, come. And he arranged this very smart glass bowl with some crack cocaine, which none of you in here will know about. Some of you will have a friend who's done it. <laughs> anyway, and he just offered me this sort of exotic contraption. And he just went, welcome to the breath of the virgin. <laughs> How can anyone resist that? Come on! And I, within five minutes, marriage, who needs it? Why? Oh, she'll be fine. I was off my head. Now, for those not familiar with crack cocaine use, and I'm not about to give a live demonstration unless you've got 60 quid see me afterwards Uh, but um, to come down is quite difficult because you go very high very quickly luckily the Lao-Cambodia border and Thai and Afghanistan have helped us out with this is they they provide heroin which neatly counters and brings you back what they don't tell you on the tin is that when you take heroin and crack cocaine together for anything more than about three days, you can't stop. (laughs) But let's be honest, why would you want to? (laughs) This was heaven. The breath of the Virgin. He introduced me to a whole new concept of breakfast. It was called the Holy Trinity. (laughs) A bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of that. Blast on that. And you didn't matter when you had breakfast, you know. It it was still dark outside and bright lights inside. That's all you could see. And the trouble with these things is that when you take those sort of drugs, which I did as um, a perfectly reasonable response to an emotional trauma, I think you'd agree. (laughs) 
Yeah, okay. Hostile crowd, eh? I am going at this like there is no tomorrow. And do you know what? There wasn't. There wasn't a today, there wasn't a tomorrow, there wasn't a yesterday. I still had the joint account card. Oh yeah, ace in the hole. 300 pounds a day, straight out. Straight up my arm, straight down my throat. Within a fortnight, I was hopelessly addicted. I mean, chronically, physically addicted. Um, and one of the great benefits, I suppose, there's got to be some positive PR, isn't it? Is in order to keep a drug habit like that going, you've got to do a lot of stealing from your friends. So it's good to be popular. <laughs> that popularity goes pretty damn quick. But very soon, I was on my own. I was thrown out. I ended up through a very short, sharp shot, circuitous route in a little part of London, not so far from here, called Soho. Now, for those who are visitors to London, Soho is the red light district of any note. But it is where the bright lights go and London stays alive and there's go-go girls and there's Bob Zirante, as they say in Thailand, all sorts of different gender, non-specific type people who are free to express and operate in a way that they want. I very quickly ended up isolated. I very quickly felt the, the sort of sense of shame, but the sense of urgency, and this is what I try and get across, is this sense of the, the compulsion. The, there was no break, there was no rationale, there was no let's watch BBC or let's watch Channel 2 instead of Channel 3. It, it didn't exist. The world narrowed. I had to have. Now, luckily, as a sort of rather well-educated private school poncy little rich posh kid, I suppose you'd call me, um, one has a certain amount of resources, which is um, a very well-developed sense of entitlement. <laughs> I'm glad you can agree with that. I found helping myself really very easy. I took Soho as a self-service sort of bonanza. And I very quickly was using needles. I was isolated alone. I was living as a street bum. It's the only way I can describe it. I was feral. And I thought, I'll give it one old family try. And I thought, I'll ring mum. Got to a call box. Hello, mum. Yes, it's me. How would it be if I came home for a few days? Oh, no, dear. Our insurance wouldn't cover that. <laughs> and the phone went down. I felt so rejected. I felt so alone. I felt awful. And then, as God so often does... He put in my path a man that nobody else wanted to know. <laughs> we are talking here of a chap called Delroy. You and I would call him Del, Delroy. He called himself Delroy. He'd spoken so much crack cocaine and obviously listened to a lot of Keith Richard records. And he'd spoke like that because his throat was gone. And he'd heard me on the phone and he said, Oh, mate, are you in trouble? He said, Can I get you anything? And I said, well, I could use something to smoke, actually. Yeah. He's an interesting chap. He's got a spiderweb tattoo across half his face. And I'm at six foot four in a sort of the remains of, a, of, of my sort of Johnny Bowden catalogue with Ralph Lauren look. Um, unwashed, I might add. We made a happy pair. And he said, he said, I'll tell you why. You can come and crash your mind tonight. I'd met this guy two minutes earlier. I knew he could get me drugs. And now he's inviting me home. Now, I've never actually been a male prostitute. 
Um, but I'm, for any of you are here, please don't feel you're being singled out at all. I can see certainly three or four. Um, <laughs> but at that time, as he walked me through Soho to the back of the Soho Hotel, funnily enough, which, and I saw the warm glowing lights, I oh, it's quite civilised. I did think, what was the price tag of going home with him? But I wasn't about to be sort of, you know, gender specific or, or, or gender sensitive. If, if he could get me what I needed, I would do whatever it took. But he did a moody left down Richmond Mews just before we got to the welcoming glow of the Soho Hotel and took me to a 12-yard builder's dumpster, a skip. Um, for those that don't know what a builder's skip is, it's that big square box, which is a giant bucket that they put rubble and rubbish in to throw away. Now, obviously, being of high-born and high birth, um, I had a convertible skip, a convertible <laughs> dumpster. It had a rag top. And I lived in this skip every day we had to get money to get drugs. Now, how do you do that? Imagine your wallet goes, your credit card goes, your car goes, every available support that you have goes. What do you do? Do you, do you, do you cry, go home to mummy? Do you give up? No, 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 you get creative. And I managed with Dell to support a drug habit largely out of stealing chicken wings out of Sainsbury's. We would do steaks as well. We weren't all budget, okay? But what I did was actually quite inadvertently create um, an awful lot of help for the social services system because the woman that did the Meals on Wheels for the elderly would offer me 50p in the pound on anything I gave her. So if I had a 10 pound tray of steaks, she'd give me a five pound note. How is that crime? <laughs> I'm helping the homeless, of which I was one, I'm helping the elderly, and I'm helping the Meals on Wheels woman. So I, I'm in my head justifying that I'm doing a public service. <laughs> You've got to imagine me at six foot four and Delroy, the spiderweb tattoo across half his face, and we can't be bothered to walk that far. Most of the shops have spotted us from a long way off. <laughs> most days you get up, I mean, when you, wake, when you wake up in a builder's skip, I mean, you know, most of you here will go to your own suite later. You'll do what you need to do. I used to have to get up and squat and shit through a drain. Okay? And if I got the, the wrong drain, it didn't go away for a while. It's all about grill size, but you learn these things. <laughs> now, living this is feral, horrible. You know, you feel... The worst thing, the last thing you want to do is face reality. You're in the shit. You're running around. You're supporting... A drug habit. Now, I've got some apologies to make, and this is a good forum to do it. <laughs> I have never qualified as a Soho tourist guide, but there were an awful lot of Norwegians, Belgians, um, basically anyone that was weak on English, um, who I, I, I took to late night, um, late night openings of the British Museum. <laughs> that was a strip bar called Sunset Boulevard. Um, and you would get paid by these people, you know, and so you learn to duck and you learn to dive. I'm very bad at low profile, it's just not my thing. But I did use the chutzpah that I learnt from my education, is I'd walk into Sainsbury's, I'd get a bag in each hand, ram full of meat, I mean, I have 100 quid in each hand, and I'd just brazenly go up to the security guard and go, hello, my good man, now my wife's picking me up in the car park, now which is the quickest way to get there? 
and I would let him open the door for me as I walked out of the shops. <laughs> so this is how it's going. Now, it wasn't all going my way, and yes, I was selfish and ruthlessly self-interested, but there were hiccups along the way. And the worst hiccup was the shops that I chose were all supermarkets, you know, Waitrose or Sainsbury's, Tesco's, every little helps. Um, and we'd get this meat, we'd get out. Um, but uh, Waitrose, they are, oh God, they're unreasonable. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> been in there, but they, you know, they've got a mean streak, okay? I mean, I'm a kind person, I think. These guys had a mean streak. I was arrested and imprisoned for the most well-traveled leg of lamb in Britain. They put a tracking device in a 15-pound leg of lamb. Please, come on. And you sit there and think, well, he's a tarag, he's nicky stuff, he deserves to get it. Yes, I did, but have a heart. Have a heart. I went to Wandsworth Prison, which is like your Rikers Island. Um, you know, to be fair, I'd been there about three weeks earlier, and so a lot of the same people were there. And, and so you have a kind of prison conversations go a bit like this. Hello, son. What you in for? Now, in an ideal situation, you want to have a Renoir or, you know, Rembrandt. You want something a little bit glamorous. I mean, imagine arriving new kid on the block. What are you in for, son? A leg of lamb does not cut it. <laughs> Just saying, it doesn't cut it. And when I left prison that time, you can imagine the feeling inside, that sense of desperation of that almost... Because if I'm honest, it was an upgrade to go to jail. It was an upgrade. I went back to the same place, to the same skip, counting my blessings that I still had a skip mate. He hadn't run out on me. And after a couple of days, I said, this is ridiculous. I'm privately educated. I'm a man of intelligence, intellect and social standing. Clearly looking down on the world from the gutter. But I decided that, I said, Delroy, we need to cut out the middleman. We need to rob a bank. Simple. <laughs> right, now you need to understand something about crack cocaine. <laughs> just, just, just to get this clear. It was Thursday, which... Um, in, in England was traditionally when the welfare payments would get handed out. So that was a sort of government trust fund, really. A bit like mummy and daddy. Um, and they, they didn't cut you off. And so we hadn't had to put ourselves an offer. We had money in, our, in, in, in the bank or money in our hands. And we were very high. We'd been smoking crack. And I said, oh, don't worry. We need to come out of middle man. What we really need to do is rob a bank. <laughs> All right, Red, you've got something sorted, have you? Leave it to me, Del. I'm the brains of this operation. <laughs> right, that was Thursday afternoon. By the time we got our act together, it was Sunday morning. Now, I'm not sure uh, about this part of London, but certainly where I come from, Sunday morning, the banks don't open. <laughs> now, that was a minor detail. You could even say a hiccup. You know, my banana in a bag really wasn't going to be very useful against a locked door. <laughs> I thought it could look quite threatening on a counter. And then fate played a hand. A Portuguese cleaning crew was going in the back. Now Delroy, minus the spiderweb tattoos, if he just kept his face to one side, he could pass quite well. 
my Portuguese is sketchy, I've got to say. I can get you a couple of beers, maybe a coffee. But convincing a Portuguese cleaning crew that I was a legitimate inspection manager on their route wasn't going to wash. At that point, all hell broke loose. They rang an alarm. The original idea was to go and empty the drawers. I mean, how naive can you get? I thought, oh, there'll be money, they'll just they won't tie it away. I mean, you know. <laughs> scoop, 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 scoop. <laughs> I was high as a kite. I'm, I'm just saying, yeah. Anyway, that is where we got to. We ran out. Now, Dell, he had short legs and a canny mind. He'd been doing this for a long time. He was gone. I'm standing there going, Delroy, Delroy. And then I notice people coming at me. So I've legged it. And then above the builder, have a go hero, driving a, a, a particularly useful pickup truck called a Nissan Urvan, drove straight at me, pinned me against the wall and parked his van on my feet. <laughs> Again, nicked. The police thought it was Christmas. All this missing meat mystery was suddenly cleared up overnight. <laughs> I was caught, uh, I was banged up and sent back to prison. And uh, at that point, my legs, they'd crushed my toes, they'd broken. And it's important, not for sympathy, but for what happens next. They'd broken my toes, my legs had swelled up. I call it kebab leg disease. I don't know if you're familiar with Donna kebabs. <laughs> Donna kebabs are a, a staple diet of, of, of Britain. And my legs looked exactly like a Donna kebab. I couldn't leave my cell because my feet were broken. And they decided, after about three days, that I needed to see a doctor. No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> so I was lined up ready. Now, to get me to the doctor from prison, I'm not saying I was the ideal person you know, to sit with in any encounter. But they stood me, like, I mean, I'm hobbling like this. <laughs> and they locked my wrists together like that with shackles, not handcuffs, Victorian shackles. I could smell Oscar Wilde's aftershave on them. I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you. They then fixed another one to a huge meathead on my right and another one on the left. I'm now pinioned physically between two guards. I mean, you know, this is quite shaming, actually. And then they have the pièce de résistance. And they get a guy with a leather belt and a 20-foot steel chain which they put around your waist. He stands behind me. I'm pinioned between two guys. I'm held on a 20-foot steel chain. I look like Hannibal Lecter on a day out. <laughs> and to get me from the prison to the hospital, I have to get a specially adapted minicab, which is for uh, people that have to use wheelchairs. So it's the only thing that could get us all in, you know, their insurance is covered. And I was taken to a hospital called Chelsea Westminster Hospital. Now, you might think, under ordinary circumstances, especially when the sort of calibre of social position that I was falling from, they might use a discreet back entrance. They didn't do that. Chelsea Westminster Hospital has two revolving doors. They're like slow, relentless windmills. So I want you to picture yourself shackled and pinned between two huge meatheads. Now, we could go and get in. And the problem was the guy on the chain. He had to run and try and get in as the gap closed. Well, it jammed. The whole thing's gone off. I'm in prison mufti. I've got these guys, prison guards. I've got a guy on a chain whimpering. The janitor has to come. 
clearly, I mean, I've operated in this area. I'm you know, terrified I'm going to run into some friends of my parents. You know, it's, it could have been embarrassing. And eventually we get into the hospital. We get in. And I go up and I have to have the ultrasound and I, you know, I'm playing all sorts of silly jokes. You know, I'm still trying to keep up there. You know, I've got them to release the shackles so I can go and wee. Otherwise, there was going to have to be quite a complicated thing. But I, I had to still wear the chain, so I managed to time the flush. I said, pull the chain and time the flush. So everyone's like, okay, see, so I was fine. I was entertaining the troops. I thought they were finding me highly amusing. They were tearing their hair out. And we walked back down a corridor, which is almost as long as this, this room, probably twice as long. And it just so happened that a cousin of my second ex-wife pending, as it now turned out, um, was doing a Friends of the Hospital bookstall. I mean, how unlucky can you get? And as she saw me through the distance, she went, Yoo-hoo! <laughs> and as we walked past, ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk like this, she sort of fainted, she collapsed. And I, I had this moment when she collapsed and nurses were running around trying to sort of bring her around and I was held against the wall between these two guards. And I know it sounds mad, but for the first time I could see myself as others must see me. Now that is a very difficult thing to do. I don't know if anyone here has had occasion to look at themselves, not just in a mirror, but to really look at themselves and their attitudes and their behaviours. And I did, I had no choice, and I just thought, what has happened to me? You know, I was crippled, I'm in chains, I'm going back to a prison. This isn't plan A. <laughs> B, C, D, E or G. Then again, circumstance t- took hold because I'm now languishing in prison. I'm being done for attempted bank robbery. I'm looking at a possible four to five years. Nobody wants to spend four or five years in prison. I don't want to spend four or five minutes in prison. And anyone, has anyone in the room been to prison? So no one, <laughs> interesting that we're at a risk show and no one's prepared to take the risk of coming clean. Um, or perhaps I'm a freak. No, I, I think we'll work with that. Going to prison is scary. They're going to screw you in the showers. They're going to hurt you. You're going to get bullied. You're going to get mullered. You're never going to see daylight. What they don't tell you is that it stinks. It is fetid. You have a thousand people packed into a space for 600, all of them with different dietary needs and toilet training than I was given as a child. So you live in this hideous thing and every three weeks I was taken from the jail to the court for sentencing. Didn't happen, didn't happen, more reports, more this, more the other. And I became very depressed. I mean. Uh, we had one of the earliest storytellers talking about that separation from life, from society. That was me. I couldn't get the quantity of drugs. I found, I found it quite easy to get drugs in prison. Not so easy to pay for them, of course. Um, there aren't quite so many corner stores. And you take a beating every now and then. But my thing was, I'm just going to be held forever. I just thought my life's over. Now, in my sane life, I was a dad of three beautiful children. And in my real life, I was public enemy number one, banged up in a prison in South London, 
with no idea of how long I was going to be there or when I was getting out. This was my own private Guantanamo, okay? So it was scary, didn't know what was going to happen. And this is where the real surprise came in, because for those of us that have had to, through circumstance, be creative with some of the truth, and um, have to show a little sleight of hand when it comes to the till and the register at a shop, when you've shat in public, when you've had a complete stranger shoot a needle into your neck and you're not even sure what's in it, while people from the office opposite you say, Oh God, go away, we're calling the police! And you just look at them and say, Do what you want. I'm going to be gone in two minutes and I know where you work. I'd become an animal. So locked up in jail, I had time to realise that I didn't really like being an animal but I had no idea what to do. And every three weeks I was taken in front of the same judge. He's an amazing man called Justin Phillips. And this is where the biggest surprise to me of this story comes, was that he looked at me and he said, why is this man brought before me every three weeks? Why can we not get a resolution? No borough wanted to take responsibility for me. No one I knew wanted to take responsibility for me. I had nowhere to go, and he said to me, he said, what do I do? And I said to him, with utter sincerity, I said, if you lock me up, you're just going to have a bigger problem to deal with when I get out. So what do I do? And then something weird happened. I looked at him, against every instinct of every courtroom I've ever been in, I looked at him and I went, help me. Just help me. And he did. He made a special order. I had to go and see him every fortnight. I built a relationship with him. He reintroduced me. He rehumanized me. And I got involved with a load of people that could help me. Many years later, about three or four years later, I got approached with the organization I was working with to say, oh, there's a guy down in West London wants to set up a dedicated drugs court. Will you go down and tell them about how we approach sobriety and keeping off drugs? I said, yeah, yeah, fine. And I had to go in and there was a government quango. There was about 30 people around a huge boardroom table. Ministers, finance guys, the whole thought, you know, legal profession. And in the middle of the room was Judge Phillips. And as I walked into that room, he stood up and he went, oh my God, Radcliffe, and started to cry. He came and gave me a huge hug and he just turned to everyone and said, this is the guy I was telling you about. This is my guinea pig. I didn't know that at the time. But on the back of the evidence of his direction, of his input into my life and my criminal belch, if you like, all over Soho in the West End, he set up something called the Dedicated Drugs Court. So if I upset a few people along the way, which I did, if I upset myself along the way, which I did, I will be forever grateful to that man because not only did he see it could work for me, it could work for a load of other people. And if we're not giving something back, then we're taking. And I don't want to be a taker anymore. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 
That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.